What's going on? How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing uh, I'm doing all right. I have a, a slight eye irritation that's causing me to be very blind in one eye, but other than that, I'm okay. How'd you get an eye irritation? I imagine it's from my contact lenses probably being uh, overused or not sanitized or something. I don't know, but it's... Uh, it's preventing me from comfortably looking at any screens, so I'm very That's happy that, that we decided to do this format because I could just look at the ground while we have this conversation. I think that's excellent yeah a lot's been going on mike i gotta thank you for joining uh and on that little surprise party that tara put together for me um that was fun where were you that day seemed like you were traveling i was trapped well i was coming home so we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit but i was down in uh williamsburg in jamestown for the weekend and i was driving up through Virginia. I think that when we were talking, I was right on 495, if you know where that is, as it goes around, um, as it goes around uh, uh, D.C. Okay. And so I haven't been, I used to live there. That's right. where I used to live. And so I haven't been there, um, I haven't been there for, um, I don't know, 20 years to be able to go and see one how much that landscape has changed but then also like recognizing how much i've changed since then you know that's always a cool thing in my opinion like when you have these like uh these opportunities to um to see how and where you've grown because you know and i guess this is kind of an appropriate thing to say now because you know they're they're when you're just living being you, you know, you always feel like you. you. You don't feel yourself when you grow, but you need a point of reference. And so since we did that birthday party, uh, you, that is, birthdays are traditionally like, you know, an excellent time to kind of reflect uh, where you are. And so I had that experience as did you. So, so where are we? Where, uh, bring me up to speed. You had an interesting story to tell me. I saw the pictures online of you with that bird. Yeah. Do you want to begin there, or do you want to talk a little bit about your birthday for a bit? Yeah, we could start there, because that happened on Friday. My birthday was on this past Monday. So for and folks... How old did you turn? I turned 27, which is the first Saturn return I've been hearing. People have been telling sure. me that, right? Uh, you're getting into it, yeah. That's usually around 29, but okay. it's... You know, it, it, it represents it represents something um, like bigger than like an exact like uh, an exact transit, if you will. It's like a transitional time, age twenty nine. So, uh, it is my opinion that when someone is aware that a Saturn return even exists, and so what a Saturn return is, if you don't know what that is, if you're listening, um, Saturn is in the same place in the heavens as it was when you were born. Another way of thinking about it is like Saturn completed in orbit, if that in fact is an actual description of, of the model in which we see. But, but it, it occurs every 29, 29 and a half years. It's one of the reasons why Saturn is, we know, is at least in a certain, to one degree, is in harmony uh, or resonance with the moon because they're both on this kind of like 29-day, 29-year 20, cycle. Uh, but... From, uh, from an experiential astrological model, 
Um, the Saturn return is always a time of, of a transition into like greater maturity, greater, um, like really, uh, maturity is probably the right word, um, of becoming more grounded in your material reality of just like being alive and being a human being and, and everything that comes along with it. Sometimes that can be very um, disruptive and sometimes it can be very grounding. Uh, the disruptiveness, uh, you could look at it in terms of, uh, do you have any hard aspects to your Saturn? Like, you know, if your Saturn square, your sun or something along that, it would imply that it's going to be like uh, your Saturn returns are going to be really intense areas of growth or it can be a little bit more, um, a little bit smoother and that could show itself as like really like grounding into to more maturity, more mature role, however you want to define mature in your life. So the fact that you're aware of it, the fact that you're looking at, at that lens of your life and your journey, like, okay, I'm stepping into this period of time. To me, that is an indication both uh, symbolically and literally of becoming aware becoming aware of your life as a journey. You know, we said in the beginning about, um, you know, it's, it's hard to see growth when you are just like living in the present moment. And there's something really, really powerful about being present, but then at the same time to step out of your, the, the presentness, to step out of flow and to look and reflect, you know, that uh, always provides a different a different view of your life and your life trajectory and so forth. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think that's something, you know, I hope people listen to this take away from our conversations is that, you know, life is a journey. Take it upon yourself to make it a fun one, <laughs> you know, but yeah, certainly a lot has changed, but, um, not, not, no turmoil yet. So we'll see. Well, it, it, it's not a, it, it's, it's, it's a time frame. Mm. So it's like one of these things, like what I would recommend is like, you know, having an awareness of this period of one's life. And then usually through life is going to unfold as life is going to unfold. But then to the, the power of reflection, the power of contemplation is like to go and you look back and like, wow, you know, I was here and now I'm not, and now I'm there and look how I've changed and look how I've grown and look how, how I face challenges and look how like, you know, I lost this battle, but it actually brought me somewhere else. Or I thought I won this battle, but you know, the long run, like, you know, it's not so much about doing the right thing as much as it is about becoming aware. At least that's my thought as it. And, and I'll even say this, not to be contradictory to you, but it's, it's, I think it's to each person to decide if their journey, like to have fun, like not everyone's about having fun. In fact, Saturn in a way isn't about having fun. It's about more so about responsibility. And so it's about, uh, it's, it's, you, you take whatever approach you want to take, just realize like, this is my approach. Some people are more, have more of that, like happy go or, or positive or fun outlook. I mean, I think that certainly serves everyone, but it is ultimately the power of, of perspective and awareness is that you begin to see things in a, in a bigger picture. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's your unique, it's your unique experience. Well, I've had a very unique experience the past seven days. So 
yeah, maybe maybe we'll get into that because well, I think it. awareness awareness is certainly a part of it in in many different ways. So I'll take us back. We last spoke Wednesday, minus, you know, last time we spoke on the podcast was last Wednesday. The episode number four came out that Thursday, and then that Friday, about, what, five days ago now, we um, we decided we were going to go apple picking, right? It's fall. We want to make an apple pie, potentially, stuff like that. So we set out to go apple picking and we didn't have an apple orchard in mind but we decided we'd look for one along the ham and asset line now i told you a little bit about the ham and asset line i think on episode two and you told me i should buy a book called the gaia matrix by peter shampoo right well i bought Is that how i pronounce it it's spelled with a ch it's a french spelling it's not like the what you put in to clean your hair right 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 and and you're the third person to pronounce it that way so or maybe i don't know if that's how you originally pronounced it but other people have also no i never i way. never pronounce his name i don't know how to say it but i like the shampoo i'm uh, i i struggle with a lot of words and particularly foreign words so so I'll, I'm going to stick with shampoo, but I don't know if that's the actual um, pronunciation. But nonetheless, nonetheless, go on with the story. So do, you got you got the guy Matrix. I got the book. So you know, this Friday we didn't have the book yet. I'm just bringing that up as a side note because the Ham and Asset ley line is something that we've been really interested in studying, and you suggested that I get this book. And I love how you how you are tying it into like as an idea, you know, there's this ley line and this is where it is. And then it becomes personal in the fact that you're like, oh, well, we're going to go apple. We want to go to an apple orchard. Well, let's see if we can go and find something on this line. Like, you know, that's bringing that's an awareness and it's bringing that level of awareness into your actual life. And what I would say would be like a really fun and kind of human way. It was, yeah. We got uh, we got into it. We got some apples. We were trying to find an organic apple farm, but it's like it, it's an odd it's an odd thing when you ask people about uh, when you ask farmers about you know whether their food is organic or not because there's a lot of licensing and certification that goes along with becoming USDA organic. So a lot of farmers kind of get upset and they're like, you know what? You know, they like take it as an insult to the quality of their food. Like we don't have to jump through all these hoops to be organic, you know, like that kind of mentality. So my thought was like, no, don't ask, don't ask. And Tara asks, and and I think they they said something along the lines of, oh, we use uh, we use chemicals, but they're no more toxic than you know this the stuff you clean your house with. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of toxins in the household <laughs> cleaners. So that's not exactly comforting, but you know, um, either way, that was like the 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 minimum qualification. More importantly, we were looking to find an apple orchard on the Ham and Asset ley line because you know either way, if we eat a couple GMO apples once, no big deal. Every other time we, we buy organic. So we got six apples. It was kind of a small orchard. wasn't really too exciting, but we got six apples and we 
moseyed on. We're like, all right, well, that wasn't organic, so let's just uh, let's maybe we'll find a uh, an organic farm. So Tara goes on her phone. We start driving. She's looking up organic farms, and we're just kind of taking in the day. It's beautiful fall, New England day, and obviously rivers, big point of interest as well as the ley line. So we're driving along this river, and I look at the map, and I see, oh, it's the Quinnipiac River. You know, this is a uh, this is a, a interesting river. You know, we we've been bottling river water every chance we get. We have one from the Farmington River, we have one from the Connecticut River, and we have one from uh, the Aspetuck River, which is a very small river consider c- compared to the other two. Um, and then we have one from a, a waterfall that bleeds into the Housatonic River. So this would be our fifth bottle of water from the Quinnipiac River, you know, just trying to gather the energies, so to speak, into these little mm-hmm. glass bottles. So we go to the bridge, and it's a, a walking bridge that used to be, you know, for carriages and forth so forth before they built the actual road bridge that is next to this bridge and we stopped and looked at the sign because that's another part of this whole thing is being very aware of all the little details even the minute ones you know something as simple Mm. as as a plaque or a sign telling you who built the bridge can lead you and hang with me because i think this is super interesting so you're totally speaking my language. Like, I love this stuff. So go on, go on. So, so you see the plaque. And it- yes, we see the plaque, and we see that it was built by the Berlin Iron Bridge Company. Now, Berlin, for those who don't know, is a town in Connecticut. I knew that because I used to deliver packages in Berlin, and I, I liked it there. It was a very quaint town the houses were spread apart just far enough so that you didn't really have to like walk too much it was more of a driving route than a walking route so it was one of my preferred areas to deliver when I was a delivery guy and I really just got in touch with that part of the state it just felt like the energy there was interesting so I take note of that I'm like oh the Berlin Iron Bridge Company and it says that this company has built over 600 bridges one, uh, the farthest one is all the way in Texas. So they're pretty prolific. You know, in the 1800s, they were building all these bridges. So took note of that. And the other thing that was very strange, it's a red bridge, painted red. It's iron. And on all four sides, right at the entrance ways, there are pine cones, you know, like they have at the Vatican, that like pine cone symbol for the pineal gland. So, like, car- like a three-dimensional sculpture of a, of a pine cone or, like, a carving of a pine cone? A three-dimensional, almost like a, uh, like a cap, you know, like you would, like a, like, a, like a flagpole, the top of a flagpole, kind of ornamental okay. Okay. And, and coming out of each um, perimeter of the bridge, you know, on both sides of the entrance. The I believe that's signal. What's that? I believe that that what you're describing that's called the the cap that it's called a fit they're not uh, the architectural term for that but go on okay so taking note of all these things Tara points out the the pine cones and you know she's like oh it's the pineal gland symbol I'm like you're right on with that yeah so we bottled up some water and uh, 
looked up in the sky, beautiful birds flying around. It was just, you know, a big soup of details here that I'm trying to, to get together. But we, we just took it all in, you know, there was nothing like that's, that's kind of the point I want to make is like, you don't always have to be necessarily looking for explicit clues. Sometimes the clues will come up afterwards, right? So we're there and we leave and, uh, we left with our water and we, we kept on going and we were like, all right, let's go find an organic farm. Now, I, I, maybe I should sidetrack here because last night I was looking into that bridge company a little further just to see if there was anything interesting maybe we missed uh, at that particular bridge. And it turns out that this bridge company has a bridge that they built over the Susquehanna River in a place called hmm. Anuaga. And Anuaga is named for an Iroquois settlement that was there before the Revolutionary War. And this Iroquois settlement had um, a mix of the Six Nations tribes. There was, you know, various different tribes. And the Lenape people hmm. were one of those tribes that happened to be a part of this Wanaga settlement. So, you know, I look at that and I'm like, wow, all right, that's cool. Let me go a little further. Who was behind the disbanding of this settlement? A man named Joseph Brandt. So I'm like, Joseph Brandt, who's this jerk? You know, I look, look into this guy thinking he's some the British chief? guy. So Joseph Brandt was actually an, uh, a Mohawk. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of him before? Yeah, I know who Joseph Branton. So he's, he, a, he's a big he's a big name in history. Right. So he I had no idea who this guy was, but it turns out that where this uh Onawaga Lenticular Trust Bridge was built, the same company that built the one that Tara and I happened upon, was where this this man Joseph Brandt had a, a settlement of, of you know his people mixed with some British people. They were fighting with the British against the colonists. So essentially, you know, on the side of the, you know, the opposite side of, of the American Revolution. And his name was Theyan Danega in Mohawk, which means one who places two bets together. So he, you know, AKA. He, Did you say he, bets or beds? B E D or B E T? Bets. Bets. So he's the type of guy who doubles down. He, 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 he ties right. two bets together, right? So because in those days, if you made a bet, you would literally tie, you know, what you were wagering to what the other person had wagered, right? You would tie them together. That was like a significant uh, way to, to go about something like that in those days. So it's just, you know, examining the, the little like snapshot shot of history and how this bridge connects to this bridge. I just thought that was a, maybe a, a tangent, a huge tangent, but just an interesting, um, connection really, you know, this, this bridge company has a bridge over the Quinnipiac in the Quinnipiac gorge as it comes through the mountains and heads down towards new Haven now, the first time Tara and I had... Can, bottled, can I interrupt you? Please, Can I interrupt ahead. you for a second? Can, so go more into, like, um, 
to the two bets and like the taking down of uh, what what was it? There was a village there, and then the village was 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 disbanded. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. So this this village, the Anuaga settlements, uh, Iroquois village, it was you know sort of a stronghold in the sense that when Native Americans were being kicked out of their homes by colonists, they would kind of refugee there. So it became a refugee yeah, there, there place. Yeah, there are a bunch of places like that here in, 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 in Lancaster. So, And the name of the, the two bets, was that the, the Algonquin of Joseph, like the his name, like in not the Angelus size, like Joseph Branch, or is that two se- separate people? I'm a little confused. Oh no, sorry. Yeah, that that is his name given to him oh, by so his Mohawk person. relatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Okay. And somewhere and so along the go line, in... he was adopted by British uh, parents or, or raised, you know, to learn from British people somehow. Right. Is is that the is that the two bets tied together? Like, if That's you think it. about that, like, it's in terms of like, you know, this is a person who's kind of like betting on two different sides like well who am i bet like you know am i betting on the french am i betting on the british am i betting on the colonists like in terms of what direction what do you do when like the land which you call home is suddenly invaded and the invasion's not going to stop so who do i align with like i would imagine that's got to be part of the mentality if if that was your experience if that's what you're living right and it's interesting and that, it's interesting to find this out too um and I'll, I'll connect it all back because part of my research recently has been uh, about my area, Connecticut, and this guy Joseph Brandt. He's from um, I think the like lower, a little bit lower than Cooperstown area. So it's like the New York part of the Susquehanna River where he particularly um, lived at this point in time. But he was from the Ohio River Valley and died in Canada. So this was just. Uh, towards the midpoint of his life, but the Mohawk Indians were very like legendary all across the mm-hmm. East Coast for being brave warriors, brutal warriors. And it's interesting because they had all of these alliances with the British, the Germans, and the different colonists. You know, they almost saw the colonists more of an equal than they did uh, their fellow indigenous uh, tribes because where I'm from, there's the Housatonic River. And I, I think I, I mentioned this on this podcast. I was like, I don't know what the Housatonic means, and I want to find it out. Well, I found out that the actual name of the river is the Pudatuck River, and that is given its name from a very well-known, prominent chief who was sort of like the patriarch of many different clans, that all settle along this river. But one thing I learned while I was researching this Housatonic River is that when the Mohawk Indians would come, the Pudatuck Indians had a series of mountains where they could convey a message over 200 miles within two to three hours through a series of calls and alerts. Because, you know, in those times, if the Mohawk showed up, you had to pay them tribute or they would take your whole tribe clan hostage and and kill all the men and take the women and children. So it was very, you know, the Mohawk were very 
uh, different than this kind of Thanksgiving idea that we have of, of indigenous people. Like, well, yeah, we, you know, they were all nice and, and hunting and we came along and we screwed it all up for them and got them sick. You know, I feel like you either get like the whitewashed pre or post World War II version of Native Americans where they were just like happy go lucky hunter gatherers who, you know, got squashed by modern times. And then, you know, pre-World War II, the narrative was like, well, they were so savage and they didn't, you know, only the ones that went with Christianity were worth uh, saving, you know, and the rest were, were just savages. So neither of those explanations are true. And I think that's what's become so fascinating is, is understanding the true history of the people that were here before the colonists came. So, yeah, this Joseph Brandt guy definitely... Very interesting, I mean, to put yourself, you know, in his shoes, you know, being born in a, a place that's being actively invading and then, yeah, having to almost like pick sides. To him, it seemed like probably the British were the the better choice to go with, I'm sure, because they had done this kind of thing before where they would go and colonize and, and make friends with the tribes and use the tribes to sort of get as much information as they could whereas i think like the puritans and the other colonists the ones that came here for more religious reasons and this is speculation folks i think that they were just more suspicious of the indigenous people in general you know after you get into a few miscommunications and then you know they, they come along and chop some heads off it's like all right we're gonna write them off completely they're savages no dealing with them anymore like that's kind of understandable i mean from the european perspective in that colonial era like indigenous people were were so different you know and not in a as we can read in textbooks. I mean, some of these books I have that I've been reading through, they basically say that the Indians were ignorant sloths and, you know, they, they, uh, they could never get it together. And just all of these really, you know, insulting things they would say about them. But it's really just a, a comparative person, like a, a I, don't, I don't think they were able to, to stand in their shoes. You know, they really just didn't identify them as human beings it seemed like there was a big separation between who they were and who the indigenous people were and that you know led to a lot of a lot of separation but this is a this is a big tangent from from my story about a bird what are your thoughts well, well no well, well so so you're the 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 timing of of this conversation is 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 perfect i just got off before you and I start talking, I just recorded a show with Roz Ben, and uh, it was a follow up to a an earlier presentation which Roz did all about um, about this this what, what he calls balling, you know, ball worship, B A A L, and and he kind of like paints this very very complex like retelling of historical narratives, you know, going back to starting, at least that's where he picks up on the story in ancient Egypt and then going throughout like, you know, uh, the Mediterranean area, uh, during the middle ages and like just this kind of, um, uh, complexity of different cultures and different, like, you know, all of these different, um, 
ways of which people were. And the reason why it's so interesting because his, his telling of the story really set the stage of the colonization of what we call now North America and what North America was. But in his, in his analysis and, you know, uh, everything which I've read really supports it. He's just, you know, he's done an amazing job connecting a lot of lines for me. Uh, but it deals with the fact that these, these histories, um, these complexities between, you know, different groups of people, it goes way, way far back. So that when you look at a section of the story we're told of humanity and who knows how true any of it is but um it's complex and it's much 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 deeper and we've been given this like as you said like a watered down version of understanding things but the truth of the matter is it's it's really complex it's not as as simple as as seeing uh, you know, good guy, bad guy, or this or that. And if you want to wrap your mind around it, you have to realize that we come at it with, with so much indoctrinational uh, bias and then also cultural bias and all this different stuff. And like, you know, the one thing I want to say is like, you're absolutely right. Like it's, 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 it's not easy to, to separate all of these different perspectives and to be flexible and to look at it from all of these different ways is, I think, a really good way of trying to, to, to understand the future. You need to understand the past sort of thing. So I, I think this, this is – you're bringing up great points. And it's um, – if you haven't listened to, to Ross's presentation, or and I think it was episode 11 of From the 40th Parallel, definitely go and, and hear what he's got to say because it ties into all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've definitely said this a hundred times on my podcast and maybe even this one, but yourself and Ross Ben, huge inspirations for me uh, and endeavoring to look into this stuff. And when Ross and I met um, about a month ago or so, two months now, uh, one of the things that he asked me as we were wandering around Wissahickon Creek was, so tell me about Connecticut. What's the Connecticut mystery? And I felt very unprepared to be asked that. So since then, I've you know gone out of my way uh, to to really hone in on that. So so I, I said all of what I said about the Quinnipiac River because Tara and I were drawn to this location. Okay, we we did not plan on going there. Like I said, we we totally randomly happened upon it. Really, the apple orchard was very close to this bridge, so that's you know why we were there. But either way, we we go to this cool bridge, and and instead of just dismissing it as just another bridge, it stuck out. You know, I took a picture of it. It was kind of strange looking and, and sure enough, there's connections loosely to this other place that involves indigenous people and their history. So yeah, that was worth investigating. I didn't find anything, you know, crazy like, oh, and, and this bridge has a, you know, adrenochrome in the in the paint recipe you know like it's not always gonna be that wild but you know it's still it's still worth looking into so so that day like i said 
Quinnipiac River. Let's let's leave that there because we're going to come back to it. So that day, we're like, all right, first apple orchard, not not exactly what we were looking for. Let's see what else is out there. So we're driving, and we go through a town called Meriden, Connecticut. Now, as this is all going on, we're listening to Court Lindahl talk about, you know, ley lines and different building alignments. And Court Lindahl, he's very interesting. He's a little dry the way he talks because he's kind of monotone, but he's very, very interesting, and he's very knowledgeable about the ley lines. So I'm like, this is perfect. Let's listen to this. And he keeps saying over and over, meridian points, meridian lines. And then we are driving through this town called Meriden. And Tara and I are like, Meriden, Meridian, Meriden. Okay, that's hmm. interesting, right? And you look at the map of Connecticut, Meriden's boom, smack in the middle. Okay, it's right in the middle of the state. And it's not just right in the middle of the state. It's right on this sort of mountain chain that it's not quite the Appalachian Mountains, but it's sort of like a older because everything east of the Appalachian Mountains is much older than everything west of the Appalachian Mountains. So we have some strange sort of mountain chains here. And one of them is called the Hanging Hills. It's, uh, you know, what mountain range it's in, I don't know. But it's the Hanging Hills. And it's like a red rock sort of cliff face that just juts up out of this one little town above a pond and a river. And that's where Meriden is. Again, side note. <laughs> so, so I'm like, all right. Let's go, let's go to this organic farm. We had two choices. We could have went to one on the eastern side of the state. We could have went to one on the western side of the state. So for whatever reason, I'm like, let's go to the one in Bethlehem, Connecticut. And secretly, it was because there's a grocery store near over there that I wanted to go to. So I didn't tell Tara that because she was all about going to the farm that day. She didn't want to go grocery shopping. But I had my own secret plans of maybe stopping at this organic grocery store. So, again, adding to the whole randomness of the, of the day. We're driving through Morris, Connecticut. All right, and I know I'm hitting people with a lot of names, but that's all right. Just know that where we were at the Apple Orchard and where we are in Morris, both of those towns are on the Hammonasset line that we've been investigating, right? So we're driving along on our way to Bethlehem, and, and it's one of those days where I'm, like, not the best driver in the sense that I'm distracted and I, I'm not paying attention to the gps as much as i could which is fine because you know we're not in a rush or anything so naturally I, I probably missed a few turns and and we were off schedule as to <laughs> google would have expected us to be there by but i'm so glad we were because as we were passing by this nursery and a farm we see off to the left of the road a great blue heron okay and for those who don't know what a great blue heron is it's a very large bird maybe one of the largest wading birds in our state it's about four feet tall it has a wingspan of about five feet and a half when it's fully grown and its beak is like a four inch dagger you know it uses its long neck to and and beak to catch fish and all sorts of other creatures but 
you know, you see them flying in the sky and they're really beautiful. You know, they got these long necks and they curl them up against their chest when they fly. And they have these long legs that kind of dangle behind them. So they're really interesting birds and, and they're, they're very elusive. You know, if you see one in the river hunting or you see one, you happen to walk near one on a trail, they'll immediately fly away. You know, they're not the type, they're not like a turkey. They're not going to hang around, you know? So it was, it was a rare, you know, thing to see a great blue heron that close to the road. I'm like, that's not normal. There's no way this bird just decided it's going to stand on the side of the road. And it did seem like it was struggling a bit. So my, you know, instincts kick in, you know, animal hero mode. And and I've been the type to do this, you know, save animals. It's probably a, a dozen or so animals that I've brought into, brought to like a vet or whatever, you know, just life happens and you're in the right place and you can help an animal out. I, I, I never turn a, turn that opportunity down and this was no different. So we pulled a quick U-turn and pulled over and this is a busy road. It's not like a country road. It's a, it's a busy road in the country. So people are going 50 miles an hour flying by and, uh, and you know, the bird is just like, probably totally freaked out so i'm as calm as i could be i get out of my car very calm walk over to him and he sees tara and i and he starts flapping his wings to get away but he can't take off so i'm like oh okay i see he's got a broken leg because birds you know when they're when they're flapping their wings they need to give themselves a, a nice hop to catch that wind otherwise they're not going anywhere you know and the more he flapped his wings, the further forward he leaned into this bush. So I'm like, oh, God. And he's going into the bush more and more as we're trying to get closer to him. And he ends up, like, really digging himself into this bush. So I get down on my hands and knees, and I start crawling through this bush, pulling prickers off and getting the prickers out of the way. And I get down to where me and this bird are like two feet from each other under a bush. And, you know, like I said, this bird's got a four-inch beak dagger. So the whole time I'm thinking, like, this thing's going to stab me in the face if I'm not careful. And it, it was going for... Uh, bites you know it's going it's trying to bite me because it it doesn't know that i'm trying to save him it's just like oh god i'm about to die this big human's gonna eat me you know so he's he's trying to like it's active it's actively trying to 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 bite you or to poke you that's what you're saying it was yeah it was it was basically like how it had fallen into this bush it's a, imagine a very large bush you know on the side of a okay. bush okay we're we're in a bush that's as tall as me um and and i've crouched into the the base of it you know so the, all the sticks and leaves are above my head and and in, in this little space yes it's just me and this bird and the, every time i kind of go and to put my hand near it he goes to to bite my hand until i kind of just really calm down and really just got as centered as I could, you know, really tried to breathe deep and, and just project that inner calm energy. Not that I'm, you know, claiming to be animal psychic or anything like that, but I do think that there's a level of, of intuition that animals have and they can sense whether you're nervous or scared or angry. So I just tried to calm myself as much as I could and just gently stroked his feathers and his back to reassure him that I was not here to hurt him. 
And uh, I look behind me and Tara's there and I'm like, you know, what are we going to do? You know, we, I can't get this thing out of here. So she runs back to the car and she grabs a towel. And by the time she comes back with the towel, I had kind of stroked his feathers back so that his wings were on its side rather than all flailed out. So now I was able to get my hands around his body with his wings without, you know, him being able to flap them, but he wasn't uncomfortable either. It's normal resting position for a bird. And I pick him up by both hands and boom, snap. He snaps his beak right towards my face, Mike. And, you know, these animals have like a foot long neck that they curl up. It's like a snake, you know, <laughs> like literally like a snake coming at you with a big sharp knife. <laughs> so it was really like, okay, you know, now I'm not calm because I tried to calm myself down. And then now this thing's trying to attack me and I'm like, dude, I'm trying to save you. What are you, you know, it's like that kind of back and forth between me and the bird. And just in the nick of time, Tara comes she, with the towel. I'm like, put it on the ground. She puts the towel on the ground, and I put the bird down on the towel, and I kind of wrapped him in the towel so he couldn't flail and, uh, and, and spread his wings when we pulled him out of the bush. And also, I didn't want his feathers or, or wings to get caught on any of these little sticks and prickers that were in this bush. So... So I navigate him out of the bush head first, like with my arms as extended as I can so that he's, you know, unable to stab me. Right. Because the whole time he's like stretching his head around, moving his head, trying to bite me, trying to move his head, trying to get free. And, Is it making noise? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's going squaw, squaw. And when they and when they make this call, their whole neck, like because their neck is very fragile. You know, it's very light, thin bones in their neck. And uh, they expand when they make this call like, uh, you know, it's like a reed instrument, you know, the way the, the air moves through it. And you, I could see it like vibrating and the little feathers on his neck would like stand out. It's very interesting to see all that detail so close because, like I said, these birds are so elusive. You you barely get a good look at them unless you're in, you know, the the scientific position to study them and capture them and whatever those you know bird scientists do to them. So I, I'm I'm really in awe how beautiful this bird is because it's it's you know it's not like a small bird. It's very large, kind of formidable. And yeah, making a lot of noise, stretching his neck. So I come out of this bush and, you know, I, like I said, this is a busy road. People are driving by. Nobody stops, but everybody kind of looked to see like, what the heck is this guy doing? You know, because <laughs> I have a huge four, five foot long bird in my hand. So I'm like, all right, Tara, get in the car. You drive. I sit in the back seat. She opens the door for me and I get in the back seat and I'm just kind of holding on hoping that this guy doesn't freak out in the back car, a back seat of the car. Luckily, he was very, very calm once he got in the car. I think he either realized, like, I'm not getting out of here, can't fly out of here, or maybe his depth perception was off, you know, because the, the seat was black. So he's kind of just staring into the blackness of my of my car seat. And we're at this point we're like all right where the heck do we bring them because it's a friday it's getting late it's dinner time you know people the vets and all these different animal rescue places they're not open 
So we're calling. We go to this animal rescue place, and it's an abandoned lot. <laughs> on Google, on Google, it says animal rescue. But you show up there, and it's literally like a, a parking lot. No, no building, just like three or four apartment buildings and like an old bodega, but no animal rescue place. So I'm like, what the hell? And I'm like losing, losing my cool. Cause I got this bird in my hands. <laughs> Tara's on the phone. She's also driving and we're, we're in a pretty busy part of the state. You know, it's funny. Connecticut's like an odd mix. You could be 10 minutes here in the middle of nowhere. And then the next 10 minutes you're like right in the, in a, a busy road in a busy city. So we're in this kind of like, I would call it a ghetto. Bristol, Connecticut is pretty much a ghetto. And I'm like, why the hell did we come here? Of course, they're not going to be able to help a, a heron in the middle of uh, the ghetto. So I'm kind of getting mad at, at Tara because, you know, it's not her fault. It's a high stress situation. She doesn't know off the top of her head where to bring a, a freaking hurt heron, you know? So I'm like, we need to go to a farm. We need to go to a, a, a place that already has animals right now, you know. So she goes into her phone and whatever it was, intuition, grace, she f called a farm that <laughs> happens to also rehabilitate birds. Just hmm. the first chance she calls this place Stony Brook Farm. And it's funny because there's a brewery in Connecticut called Stony Creek and their their logo is a great blue heron. So I thought that was an odd connection. But either way, we call this farm and the, the woman who owns the farm is like, oh my gosh, yes, bring the bird as soon as you can. We can help it. So I'm like, wow, what a relief. So, so we drive like a, 40 minutes into this kind of rural part of the state onto a farm and we get there. And, uh, Hold on, let me ask you a question. Is ahead. the bird still is the, is the bird calm in the the car now? You've been driving for a while. Has yeah. it remained calm? Yeah, the bird. It was funny. The bird was very calm. I started to shake a little bit because you know I'm holding my arms extended for a long period of time. Yep. My my arms started to shake, so I'm like, oh god, I hope I don't make this bird nervous because now I'm I'm shaky, like really shaky. Um, Are you still holding the bird, or did you just place it in the back? I See. couldn't. I couldn't place him because he had one good leg and one broken leg, and he was trying okay. to use that good leg to like get himself up, you know? So where I had him held, his leg was, both legs were kind of relaxed and gotcha. he couldn't like stand up, but it, you know, you've seen them. They're very tall birds. If, yeah, he, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. if he was standing on my back seat, his head would be touching the ceiling. So, so it was kind of, but you were actively engaged with the bird for that 40 minute car ride. Like yeah. you're holding it an hour i would say probably an hour and a half i was in this okay, car okay. holding this bird yeah and it's like four or five uh, o'clock six o'clock like the time of day when everyone's going home from work so we're like in traffic too and, and people and are so like, you drive it and well people are like trying to cut us off too because because tara was taking it easy and yeah people are crazy the way they drive it's connecticut and one person it was funny they like go to like flip us off because i don't know they were upset with the way we were driving compared to them and they see that I'm holding a bird and their whole face just goes like, what the heck is that? And just like the, the, the finger, like couldn't even, they couldn't even give me the finger because they were so shocked. What, what do they call the finger? What's the other word for the finger? The bird. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. 
Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so so she gives us the she couldn't even give us the bird because I was holding the bird, and uh, exactly you trumped them. You trumped them. <laughs> yeah, so we make it to this farm. And, like, on our way there, Tara and I are kind of like, yeah, this road looks familiar. You know, it's like a little off the beaten path road. Um, And I think we had actually been down that road before, funny enough. So we get to this farm, and Rosa, the person who we spoke to on the phone, said, Hawk will be there. Meet up with Hawk. I'm like, Hawk? Hawk? Who's Hawk? All right, all right. Exactly. I'm on the edge of my seat, so keep going. So Hawk comes out of the barn and and very, uh, I would say, androgynous. But Tara was like, oh, that's a man. You know, I I thought it was a woman, to be honest. But this person, Hawk, is very androgynous, even down to the name. Um, Like a, a... long hair tied into a long ponytail and sort of like just an androgynous face, hard to tell, uh, and body too. Cause they're sort of elderly, a little older, maybe fifties, sixties, seventies, not that fifties is elderly, but, uh, they were, they were kind of on the aging side of things towards the end of their life. But yeah, the, the androgyny part, I only bring that up because of the name Hawk and the fact that Native American people classically are known for not growing facial hair, right? So it's just a, it's a genealogical trait. They don't grow facial hair. So that, in hindsight, Tara and I were talking like, was Hawk a man or a woman? And I'm like, well, maybe he's an indigenous guy because he just doesn't have facial hair. So my first thought is that he kind of looked like a, a, a more rugged woman. But on hindsight, he... It's probably, you know, a Native American. Anyways, total side note, we get out of the car and Hawk's there and Hawk's like, hey, I was just feeding the horses. And and he's like, what what do you got here? And, and I pull out the bird and he's in my hands. You know, I'm trying to keep him in the car because as soon as the bird comes out into the open air, he's like escape mode, trying to flap his wings, trying to get away from me, trying to peck at me. Uh, But he was a little calmer towards me by then. But as soon as we pull him out of the car, the bird goes, boom, straight for Hawk. Like, I'm talking an inch from Hawk's face. This bird, like, pecked at him. And this guy, slash girl, not sure, didn't even flinch. Like, they they had seen this happen, you know, a hundred times before. So it was... uh, it was really beautiful the way it worked out because, you know, at that point, with all the stress and the energy, it was such a relief to know that we were bringing the bird somewhere. It was going to be taken care of and, and helped. Uh, and, and Hawk, again, was like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. So he takes the doves that they had out of their little dove uh, coop, and, and we put the the great blue heron in, inside of the dove coop and there was just enough room for him to stand up and kind of spread his wings and he took a big shit on my car <laughs> right before we we took uh the the towel off of him it just all over the back the back of my car luckily the outside of my car not the inside of my car and uh and his leg was bleeding a little bit and uh, the blood got on my shoes i noticed that there's bird blood on my boots now forever um so yeah it was and I, I was really moved you know I, I definitely cried a little bit because I'm like wow 
You know, not only is it a relief, but it was just like really, I was just really happy that we were able to to help that bird. And, uh, you know, it's not like it's an endangered species or anything. There's plenty of herons. They're doing fine. But it was just, you know, most people would just drive by and say, oh, there's a bird on the side of the road and, and not think anything of it. But, you know, Tara and I, we just, we couldn't, we couldn't not help it, you know, and, and we were going to find a place to, to bring it no matter what. And we did. And it was just synchronicity that, that brought us to the, the people who were actually able to do something about it and, and actually help them. It, it just, yeah, it was, uh, it was profound. Can I ask you some questions? Please. Yeah. Okay. So the first question I have is what did Hawk have to say to you about just like you getting the bird to Hawk and just the whole, uh, uncommonness of someone showing up with, with, with a wild, um, blue heron. Did Hawk have any comments like, wow, that's a, that's an impressive feat or you're lucky you didn't get stabbed or, or anything like that? <laughs> no, you know, Hawk was, Hawk was very, you, you're like on the, on point with like, okay, we need to do this. Then we need to do this. You know, the most right. non-plus he, like, just like this is his life to show or, or Hawk's life and, and like seen okay. it all before. And, uh, right, 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 right. But he, he did, he, he or she did comment, you know, saying like, wow, it's really great that there are humanitarians like yourselves who are willing to go and, and, and help an animal out like this. You know, a lot of times uh, there aren't people to to help and, you know, there's not enough experts and, and professionals to do it. So, yeah, they were right. they were very, very uh, happy that we were able to help. And, yeah, they, they seemed, you know, as emotional as Tara and I were getting, they, they seemed very, like... Um, detached from it like you know they 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 do this kind of thing a lot and uh this is their path yeah this is their path but hawk was you know, right. very very appreciative and and very uh you know again very professional I, I don't not that that's the right word to use but it just seemed like uh he not knew, emotionally vested right they knew exactly what to do and and they were going to do right. it and then they called a, a vet an avian vet who uh who actually was able to drive down there that same night and they took the bird to an aviary uh, rehabilitation center for a splint and, uh, and some recovery for the next few weeks. And apparently there's a, a, a tradition whenever a bird, you know, gets injured, they do like a release uh, and, and everybody who's kind of a part of this aviary rehabilitation center and people who come there and donate, they're all welcome to release, come for like the ceremony to release the bird back into the wild. So Tara and I are looking. Will you be part of? Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We definitely want to go down there if if uh, we can make it for sure. Yeah, I would love to to. I would that. say I w- if I were you, if I were you, I would make that event the primary uh, event for like that week or, you know, like don't let something else like take precedence over that. Like this is the, and that, cause this is going to be the bookend. The release is the bookend. Right. Do they give you any, are you in, uh, do you have a way of getting, um, of staying in contact with those folks to make certain that you know when that release ceremony is going to be? Yeah. We actually just spoke to them this morning and that's how I found that out. Uh, but yeah, the the woman that we originally called, we we saved her number, and and they were very nice. They let us look around their farm after we we brought the bird there, and we 
walked around. They had every animal on their farm was a rescue except for one horse who had been born on the farm. They had goats. They had peacocks. They had um, these amazing golden pheasants from China. They had probably like two dozen horses, two dozen goats. So it was a good place to bring them. And uh, yeah, we, we plan on going back to visit. So let me go back because I really want to be certain about this. So the the release ceremony, is this done by Hawk and the Misses or is this done by where the the people who do the rehabilitation, who does who does the release? Yeah, it, it, I, it, I don't want to say it's the Audubon Society. I'm not sure if it's the Audubon Society, but they are like the big, you know, bird uh, nonprofit people in the area. So I would imagine right. it's through them. Uh, but if not, so yeah, they'll be doing the rehabilitation. That. Do they have an do they have an estimate for you for like like when it's going to be like in a couple of weeks, couple of months? I have no couple days. Yeah, no, I, I imagine it's only right. a couple of weeks. But t- from my you know novice perspective on animal medicine, uh, the the bird's leg was very broken, like to the point where mm-hmm. it's it was it looked like it, you could have just twisted it off and pulled it off. Like it was very. I mean, that could just be because birds' legs are very fragile, but. Yeah, it was very broken. All right, so, um, so is there more to the story? Because I've I've got a lot to, I've got a lot I want to comment on, but I want to make certain <laughs> that that you've that we've gone to the conclusion of of this portion of the story. Yeah, I, I think that was like a huge. It was just a lot of energy, and then you know after that we kind of just drove home, and and uh, we didn't end up going. I don't think we we ended up being able to get. Uh, any of the organic food that we were planning on getting that day from the farm. Can't remember if we stopped. Yeah, we did. We stopped at a grocery store. This the one that I wanted to go to, but that's it. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was that day. And, and you know, one of the really cool things that happened was before we actually even got our hands on the bird to, to help him into the car and he dropped one of his feathers and Tara picked it up. So now we have right. uh, a feather from our, our new friend. We named him Sassafras because he was very sassy with his biting and his uh, <laughs> his flapping of his wings. But, yeah, it was, so now we have one That's of Sassafras' feathers. You two are adorable together with your <laughs> Sassafras. <laughs> so, yeah, all right. it was great. All right, all right, all right. So we got a lot there. We got a lot to work with, my friend. Uh, can I talk for a little bit? That would be a huge relief. All right. Okay. So, so let's go back to when we were talking uh, a little bit before this. We went down a little bit of a um, of a tangent, and we we're talking about um, Joseph Brandt. We we're talking about just like histories and like and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, all of these human sort of interactions and all of this way, and particularly as we interpret and understand history and 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 all that sort of stuff, those are all what I would call false reality. I'm not saying they don't happen, but it's false reality because they're based upon like stories and interpretations and meanings and stuff like that. Um, what you just described to me, though, with the interaction with this bird is an interaction with what I will call baseline reality. Like you said, like, you know, life brought you to this area. There are all these like our decision for this or that or this or that to go on your trip. But regardless of any of that, you came, you crossed, uh, not only did you see it, but you stopped and, and you had this experience. Um, 
So just from that level, we're going to begin to look at this. This is Mark having, you know, we, we always have these opportunities, but, but life baseline reality, for whatever reason, it is meeting you with this experience. And then if you were to go and, and compare this experience to the totality of experiences that you have had in, um, you know, your life, I would, I'm, I'm going to make this assumption for you, but it's like, you haven't really done this. You haven't saved like a huge bird before. Like this is a novel first of a kind sort of experience for you. Correct. Well, I will say I am the resident nature boy in my town. Uh, definitely like had a reputation for being a huge animal lover ever since elementary school, I would like stop kids from stepping on bugs. That's how much I like really loved animals. I don't know if it was virtue signaling uh, at that age, but, uh, but yeah, I've always made a point to go out of my way to help animals. So, but never a huge bird like this. No. Exactly. So that even within the, even within the continuity of your life, like uh, of being a, in advocate for animals like this is this would be an extreme experience indeed like this was this is special like just like you know you're not comparing it to anything other than your life and we can go and see like it's not convoluted it naturally happened based upon the mysteries of life so i'm setting the stage of like this is significant this is significant you could choose to see it as significant or you could choose not to but but at least for this uh, point of the conversation i'm going to choose to really kind of focus in on this um so we're saying that's special and we're also seeing this um the the timing of it the timing of it just so happens to align with the other part of our conversation, like it's your birthday, like this is already a marker in your life. You know, uh, it's, it's your 27th year, 27th is, you know, it's not, you know, we have a base 10 mathematics system. So like the, the tens and the twenties and the thirties tend to be, we think of as more significant, but, but 27 does have a cultural reference with 27 club, you know, it's the beginning of the Saturn return, all these sort of things. So we're, we're seeing this as, you know, the time let's like, you know, start to paint, the picture of what actually occurred because when we're having these experiences, you know, we're like caught up in the flow of life. We don't necessarily look at it or appreciate it in terms of like what, what we're, what we're seeing. So we want to begin with that. Um, all right. There's a whole bunch of things. I wish I would have taken mental notes. So where do I want to go next? So we start with, with, with the heron. So, uh, generally, this, generally uh, speaking, um, how would you describe your body type? <laughs> I am what you would call in the um, Ayurvedic terms a vata, which means that I have air and I think fire is vata, but I am very tall, very thin. I'm, I think there's a, like a physiological term for my type. It's called an ectomorph, somebody who's very Correct. tall and thin. Correct. You have very long you have very long, lanky limbs. I too. You're just an extreme. Like I have that body type as well. I'm ectomorphic, but you're like what? You're six three, six four. Oh uh, well, I don't. I don't want to try to uh, <laughs> exaggerate, folks. I am really six eight. Sometimes people. You're are six like, eight. Yeah. You are six eight. What percentage of the population is six eight? I'm going to say like point oh four percent. And so and, the point I'm trying them, to make is of them, they're all basketball players. <laughs> uh, and all them. So you have a very, very distinct body type. 
you know, one ectomorphic is less common. And then also like within the, I'm six foot tall. So you're six foot eight. Like, you know, you have an extreme version of this physical archetype. Um, so how would you kind of describe like in the realm of the aviation kingdom of a, of a winged, uh, of the winged ones, uh, like what's a heron? Like how, how would you describe a heron relative to a chickadee to uh, even like a hawk or something like that? Yeah. Uh, a heron is, it's, it's ectomorphic. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's perfectly... got that really long neck. It's got the really long legs. It's got the long beak. Perfectly designed to wade through the water and spear fish and catch other little snakes and mice and other things that hang out along the river's edge. Frogs, toads, things like that. Herons, actually, they All can eat, eat anything. They're very uh, omnivorial. So look at you. Look at your archetype and physical form. And then look at the at this 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 rare event that you've had on a very important timing of your life, and then you can begin to see there's more reflection. There's more reflection between uh, you and this this blue hair. You're both, you know, you have that like ec- whatever ectomorphic may mean. Like there's this is not like just a raven. This is not another type of bird. This is a bird where, particularly as I'm describing it, like you know, this is this is a symbol of you in a way. Because this is what your body type is. This is your experience. This is your interaction with with this bird, um, and we can begin to see, like, wow, how 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 um, tightly aligned this this seemingly random experience is. Uh, how it 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 is a more deep reflection of you. You are having an interaction with it. It is a, you are reflecting it in all of these sort of ways, in a physical way, in a timing way. Like you know, you happen to be there at the time it needed for all of these sort of things. So uh, the next thing I want to I want to point out is um, I I was asking a lot about um, when do they think this release ceremony is going to be? Because I'm going to suggest to you that this is a window. You are in a window right now. Okay. You are in a window from when you found the bird until when the bird is going to be released, because that is your, your time of being uh, in connection with it in the most literal sense. Like, you know, once that bird is released, you know, there's probably never any opportunity for you to have any sort of interaction besides just your memory. And maybe that feather, that feather is, is, is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing to keep. So, what I would, you know, how I would definitely approach this is one is like, you know, make that, that, that release of that. You definitely want to be part of it. And though you don't have to bring what I'm describing to you, to these people, and like, hey, this is a symbol of me on my birthday. You don't, you don't have to do this. This is, this is your story. They don't need to know that. But you know that. You know that within the, the greater reality of the mystery of life that all of this happened, and now you have meaning. This is not like interpretation meaning. This is not Ted Andrews meaning of like this is what a, a, a blue heron is. This is your direct relationship with the greater reality, and it is, you know, it's as tangible as can be. So now I want to go and look a little bit deeper. Is, so we know that there was, there's a leg. There's a leg injury, which is associated with the bird. And then we also know that you just said to me when we first started our conversation 
he said, you know what? I'm having a little bit of an issue with, with one of my eyes. In fact, one of my eyes, I, I almost am blind or I can't see without through that eye. Probably an irritation from, from a, a contact lens is what she said. Regardless, regardless of whatever the cause is, it's happening now. It's happening in this window. As a matter of fact, so, it was the bird's left leg and it's my left eye. There we go with that. Um, and there's all sorts of different ways, you know, the, the, are you right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. Right-handed. So your left side is your receptive side because you throw with your dominant hand. You receive with your left. Right. If you were left-handed, it would be the other way around. So if you want, we could like look at it that way or, you know, you could just look at it like is uh, the left side is also thought of as the, the mother lineage. All of these, you know, that, that's another way of looking at it. But you get to decide uh, which way you're going to zero in, whatever feels most um, appropriate. But, you know, we have those two sort of um, symbols that in which uh, where we stand, the left foot. So maybe, you know, something with... Uh, you, you mentioned specifically about this, uh, the importance of a bird's legs and uh, for the ability to take off, you know, because a bird primarily moves through flight. Um, the, the leg has to do with the beginning of the journey. All right. So we can see that. And then we could also see something as it relates to, you know, part of the pun, seeing, vision. And so there's something with that. So these are also archetypes or, or symbols, living symbols, which are in play in this story of what is happening through this window. So if it were me, if it were me, or at least, you know, to, to bring a, a, a level of richness into your life experience, into your interaction between your inner world and the outer world, and not through the internet, not through like organizations or any of these things which are created, but like an actual spontaneous real experience. Like, you know, uh, I would, I would take this time period to, to like just contemplate or to be open or maybe even do like, um, symbolic, uh, ceremony or ritual with things that represent maybe feet or taking off or maybe vision or knowing where you're taking off to maybe something with the left side, whatever that means. But these are all of um, the, the beginning with a very, very objective reality of what you just experienced while being on this consciously like, I am aligning my life and my actions to this ley line, which has always been there, but only now am I putting it into my perception, my reality, my consciousness, that I'm making choices of where I want to go and what I want to do based upon energy grids, which we find on, on earth. Mm. Yeah. So I would say, I would say this is a really significant time for you, a really fun time for you, a really like rich and deep time to kind of think about all of the, all of the, what I just described in kind of like this, this um, metaphorical way, applying that to what's actually happening in your life. You know, those sort of, you know, how does taking off and how does seeing things and stuff like that, how has that shown itself in like the day-to-day -day reality of being marked? Mm. Well, 
I think I can expand on that a little bit further now that I've had a, this time to reflect because Tara and I were noting how amazing the eyes on the heron actually looked like they're three-dimensional you know it's not like you know from far away you can't really see the eye you know and how how far it actually comes off of the bird's head but the eyes are like you know 50 percent outside of its eye socket you know it's a very large eye it's kind of impressive it's like you know she said it kind of looked like hard jello i kind of think of it as like a little marble but we looked it up because i i'm like i said to her you know i didn't see that bird blink once you know and i was looking at his head the whole car ride other than the times i looked up at the road and I didn't see him blink once and we looked it up and it turns out this type of bird has three different eye sockets or not eye sockets, eyelids, three different hmm. eyelids. And one of them is for nighttime. One of them is for daytime. And then I think the other one is like, just, it's like on the side and it kind of interacts with both, but they have two different <laughs> eyelids, one for nighttime and one for daytime. I thought that was really interesting and their eyelids aren't, closed they don't close their eyes from seeing the same way our eyelids may um they're actually sort of translucent so the bird can rest but is still able to sort of see uh if there's any movement around it maybe that would wake it up from its rest and you know put it in an alert but i thought that was very interesting and and to expand on it even further tara and i we, we, I wouldn't call it an argument, but we definitely were a little tense on our way from the apple orchard to uh, the river spot because there's been this overwhelming sense uh, between us of like comparison. Like she sees all that I'm doing with my podcast and, and sort of becoming my own self-employed entrepreneur in the sense and and not that she's jealous but she's like well i need to be able to do the same thing for myself you know like she's feeling mm -hmm. and I, I remind her you know you're not inadequate you got this I, i'm you know it's only a matter of time and i'm very patient i'm not you know I, mean, I don't expect her to like wake up tomorrow morning and be like i know what it is i'm gonna be a uh, an author, you know, or whatever, you know, she's got a lot of, um, intentions and directions. And I think it's more of a matter of like focusing in on one, but we had a, a kind of like a, a, a tough talk, so to speak. And I'm like, listen, you know, if you want to do this, you gotta, you know, really do it. I think I use the metaphor of, of, you know, if you want to fly, you don't hang out in the swamp with frogs and toads. You go hang out with the birds. I literally said hmm. that, you know, and then, you know, a couple hours later, we're saving a bird. And um, hmm. and it was really my point was to tell her, like, you know, I see where you want to be and your present state of mind is kind of holding you back, I felt like. And it's not exactly my place to to tell her how to live her life, but to the best of my abilities, I want to support her and give her, you know, the advice I would give myself. And that's, you know, what came out in that moment of like, you know, a little bit of frustration on my end, 
and a little bit of complacency on both of our ends, you know, kind of led me to be like, you know, this is what you need to do, you know, like with a lot of like force, I was kind of like, just do this, like, you know, and I, I, I don't know if what I said was completely true to what she needs to do, but I, I think she agreed that, you know, what I was saying was helpful and, and now we're on more of the same page than we were, um, about certain things. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how that brought us together too, you know, cause it was really intense trying to drive around and find this bird, uh, a place I would to imagine. stay, I would... you know? So it's like, once we got to that farm, we kind of just like held each other and, and hugged and we're like, wow, this is, uh, what a day, you know? So, so, um, a couple things to say about that. Uh, first off that, you know, just an acknowledgement that, you know, relationships are freaking tough, but when we're in relationships, when we have a partner, uh, whether it's, you know, a partner for life or a partner for a period of life, you know, when we are actively, integrated with another person like you know your our our stories blend and you know all of that sort of stuff our 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 um our life path blends during our times together so that's uh you know an inherent truth about you and and tara and your relationship and it's true about like any relationships we're ever in like for that period of time um but with that being said based upon looking at, at what I was just saying with the, the bird with the leg and the bird with the vision, and then also maybe the left-hand side, um, I, would, I would say that this experience, though it aligned within your birthday, uh, it sounds very pertinent to Tara. And so this window is her window as much as it is your window as it's both as it is both of your windows. The 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 when I say both, like you know, the path which you walk together. You walk we each walk if you're in a partnership, you have uh the part of you which is still independent and then there's the part of you that is integrated with another person. Um so I would certainly encourage Tara to to look at this window as, you know, a period for her to, um, just as what you were describing to calm your inner world before working with, with the bird, the outer world, like that's really all you can do in a situation like this. I don't think that you plan it. Like you said, you did, you described where you are right now with the work, which you're doing, like that wasn't exactly your plan. You didn't sit in a, Starbucks 18 months ago and like, Oh, I'm going to meet this person, this person, this person, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and it's going to lead me there. You may have had like a general direction, but life carried, life carried you. And so, um, when looking at this from a ceremonial sort of way, it's, it's about preparing the inner world in order to be carried, um, to where it is you're going to go. So I would say this is a, a really beautiful and meaningful shared experience which may have a different uh meaning or a, or a different in the details for both you and tara but then also your combined path so um 
I wanted to share that. Uh, and then particularly this feather, you know, particularly if she's the one who found the feather as a, a grounded or a rooted symbol of that experience, you know, that this is the way which we bring true ceremony into our lives. And for me, I'll define ceremony is a conscious um, observation and um, reverence to the mystery of life. You know, ceremony can be anything. It's it's what you bring to it. And so that 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 is my thought as related to you and, and, and Tara and the bird and this whole sort of experience. But I also want to link this back to mine and your con- uh, connection because you and I have a connection, obviously. So we're having this conversation. We do we do podcasts together. You know, we're in each other's lives to a certain degree. And one of the things which I have noticed. Um, in listening to your stories and knowing my own is some of the similarities. And we had talked about this in the past. We had talked about um, both from a, a hawk. We both had a very, very similar hawk experience on the side of the road. So I know that there is a parallel there between how I interact with the aviation world and how you interact with the, with, with, with birds. And so there's that. And then I also think back within my own, personal history uh, and other experiences I've had with birds. And once I've taken a bird to a, a rescue facility, but another time, or actually is twice, there's two other times where I have rescued birds, where I had put my hands upon a wild bird and helped it out of a situation. Once it was a crow, which was, um, which was caught in a, one of those plastic six pack containers or, or devices, whatever you call that. And another time was uh, an injured, another injured crow. But when both of those happened, uh, what period in my life when that occurred with me interacting and, and helping a wild bird, that was at the very, very beginning of uh, my exploration into the Susquehanna mystery. Like this is when it started for me. I think of that as a marker in time for when that mystery was kind of, you know, I don't know, revealed to me for lack of a better word. And I would also, since we have some parallels in our storyline in our connection, like this could be, I would look at this, this blue heron experience as maybe this is a marker. You know, you said, you are you are uncovering the your Connecticut mystery, and I say that with quotation marks because I don't know how big or how deep that goes. But you guys, whether individually or together or both, um, you know, there is something. This could be a marker for like what is going to unfold for you. I had no idea at the time that I had saved those two crows or ravens. That all that I would discover shortly thereafter so you know in in looking towards the future and the trajectory which you're on you know i would hold an expectation of of something along the lines of a discovery of going of of a deeper a deeper awareness and appreciation of the part of the world which you're currently calling home um there's that and then there's one last thing and then i'll stop talking and i want to hear what you got to say uh and it has to do specifically with um with blue herons 
And so, you know, I, I, I know this blue heron, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a striking bird and has a unique, a unique, uh, form. So they're, they're easy to identify and they are, um, you know, in, in whatever you see it, at least for me, like, you know, I, I just take pause and notice. And that's just, you know, how I've always been. But, but this, I don't know, probably the, since the summer, I've had two uh, unique experiences with blue herons on my own. The first one, I was, uh, me, Jenny, and the girls, we were down in um, kind of like a, in a valley with a creek in, like, in southern Lancaster County. And it's a place I actually called the vulture spot because I had a vulture experience there. But we were down in the creek, and it's a, it's a decent creek, maybe like 20 feet wide, not really that deep, but it's beautiful and it feels very, very remote. It's very quiet. And then um, a blue heron started, uh, was flying up the creek, probably 10 feet above the, the, the surface of the creek. So just 10 feet overhead and it's flying towards us. And I've seen blue heron fly from a distance, but I've never had the experience prior to this of seeing it fly more or less at the same elevation that I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm on a rock in the middle of, of this creek and it's flying towards me. And to see the mag, the, the majestic nature in terms of how it flaps its wings and just like the size of the bird. And it was, it was a unique experience for me. I'd never seen it and it moved me. I was like, holy shit. And it was crazy because this blue heron was flying for some distance. Both Jenny and I, we, we, we kind of like see what's happening. Like, you know, it's happening really fast and we recognize how cool it is and how unique it is. And then all of a sudden the blue heron realizes we're there and completely like goes off its course and flies away from us. But there was this moment where it was flying right at us and it did not know it did not know that we were there so there so there was that 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 was a big thing in the in probably the middle of the summer but now the second blue heron thing happened probably about two weeks ago and i think i've shared with you about this experience that i've had in millersville uh on the campus of millersville university with this owl and uh, there were three or four sightings of the owl, and then all of a sudden, never could find it again. The owl just more or less disappeared. Mm-hmm. But we continue to walk in the same sort of path, and, and, and we're aware. You know, that's, to me, I think that's some of the, those are the realest interactions which you can have is with the natural world because, you know, it's, it's working on a completely different system than, than like our human false reality world. So when you have interactions, like you're, 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 you're working at a different level. <clears throat> so that being said, like two weeks ago, we're out taking like a after dinner walk, walking through campus. And there is this one pond in the center of campus, not a particularly big pond, but it is, uh, it's marked by, these two swans, we always walk by and we look at swans, the swans live there. Um, seen them, I don't know, a hundred times. And sure enough, two weeks ago, when we are walking, approaching the, the pond right around dusk, there is a blue heron in the pond. And this is a, this is a, like a highly 
traveled toward a pond. It's not like it's it's hidden. Like there are people all around, and there's this blue heron, and a blue heron is not going to stand near people. Uh, a wild blue heron is it, it, that's not its normal behavior. But it led us. Um, we were probably there for like ten minutes, like ten feet away from it. And it was just on the pond, not concerned at all about any sort of human being. And though we never saw that heron again since those two weeks, there was this continuity, or at least it's the way I'm approaching it, of first this owl, which is, you know, it's a relatively rare bird, or at least rare in terms of seeing it, because they're, they're often hard to find. But then, uh, And then that disappeared, and then in the exact same area, like no more than like 100, 100 feet away, there was this very uncommon interaction with a blue heron up close and in, um, up close and personal for me. So when you share this story, when you share the story about what, what you have uh, experienced and the nature of our relationship and the nature of our conversations, which is about like synchronicity and surrendering to the mysteries of life as, a form of of guidance through how to go through tr- through life, um, you know. I just find that rather fantastical. I think it's I think it's really really you know. I'm tickled to to hear and see all this sort of stuff. I'm not going to go with like a meaning, but I'm just right now recognizing it as significant. Absolutely, yeah. I. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a couple things, you know, we, we had that experience where I was on the phone with you and as I'm driving, I see that red tailed hawk. I took a great picture of it. You saw the picture, you saw how close it was. Well, that was the same day that Tara and I begun this bottling, uh, river water venture, right? So the Farmington river, the next day, uh, after this heron experience, we kind of just relaxed, didn't do much. Uh, and I talked to Michelle Gibson, who is very well known in the Tartaria realm of things. She's kind of talking a lot about Tartaria and other alternative history subjects on different podcasts. I had her on my show, and she suggested that I look into Peter Shampoo, a.k.a. maybe Peter Champois, if we're going to be French. Uh, but she recommended that same book that I had been recommended from you, and it was in the mail when she recommended it. So I'm like, oh, wow, okay, cool. So there's a little more confirmation there. And the next day, Tara and I decided to go to, like, a used bookstore. And it's not just any ordinary used bookstore. It's kind of a bookstore that remained hidden from me for a while because it, and this is going to sound dumb, but it didn't have a Google uh, you know, maps location. The first few times I would look it up, Google maps would take you to like the wrong side of the street and it's a book barn and it's in a very rural area. So if you're driving down this street and you don't know which driveway to go down, you're never going to find this book barn. You know, it's covered by trees and whatnot. So I guess things have changed since, cause now they have kind of a sign off the road and a sign kind of pointing you. So it's much easier to find now. So we go to this bookstore, and I find a bunch of great books. The first one that caught my eye was this massive hundred, uh, or sorry, thousand-page book, nearly thousand pages, and it's called the Centennial History of Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. 
So I'm like, oh, look at that, Susquehanna. That's not a word you see often, especially uh, in the title of a book. So I grabbed this book off the shelf, and I really, you know, I, I went all out, you know, considering it was my birthday weekend, and I got myself uh, $100 worth of books. I got this Susquehanna book. I got the history of ancient Woodbury, Connecticut, a town, one of the oldest towns in Connecticut that also aligns with the Hammonasset line. Um, but more importantly for right now, uh, and I also got a book about Tartaria, which I'll, I'll mention before we, we end this conversation. Remind me to bring that up. Uh, but I got this little book called The Quinnipiac, The Story of a River, all about the Quinnipiac River, that same river that we bottled water at the day that we had this heron event. The great blue heron came into our lives the same day we went to the Quinnipiac River just by accident. Uh, and then, you know, again, to bring this up, the first time we ever bottled water, it was the Farmington River, and that was the day we talked to you on the phone and saw that red hawk. So today, or the, in this book, I find out that the Quinnipiac River is the same river as the Farmington River. What happens is there is a, uh, a glacial deposit that pushed the Farmington River's course northward, which, like I mentioned uh, to you, maybe off air or on this show it's the only river in the state of connecticut that has that kind of feature where it goes northward and then you know especially considering its size it's pretty interesting but the i guess we can call it the southern branch of the farmington river is the quinnipiac river so it's just really you know interesting that this little book came into my life and kind of tied all of that together uh i learned about the true name of the housatonic river the putatuck river and, uh, and yeah, and then this Tartaria book. So, you know, I haven't even looked through it yet, but it's a book called The Vinland Map and the Tartar Relation, and it's published by Yale University, and it's all about these, you know, scholars kind of disputing or, you know, trying to determine whether these maps are legit. One of the maps has, you know, Mongolia on it, and it talks about the Tartars, and how the Tartars were, you know, the incorrect name for the Mongols. And it goes into a, a lot of interesting stuff that, you know, it's rare to come by. You don't find books about lost maps and Tartaria very often. So this, this book barn had a lot in store uh, for me. And, yeah, that's, that's more to come because I, I've really only yet to read from uh, – those books the quinnipiac book is really small so i was able to get through most of it but yeah I, I found that absolutely fascinating and then the next day uh i get the gaia matrix arrives in the mail not uh i think it came on my birthday actually either the day after or, or i don't remember exactly but mike listen to this to, to stack the or, or actually before let me just leave it there for a second because is there anything you want to add to to that because the quinnipiac river and the farmington river connection to me is huge but i wonder if you have anything to say so i i agree with you uh um in terms of it being huge um and you know just to to like there, there's again a lot of parallels like i'm thinking about like the some of the research which i was doing and when I 
when the realization for me that the Chesapeake Bay and the Susquehanna River are the same body of water. Like that was like, that was, that, that was a, a game changer for me because I always thought of them as two separate things as it was. They're the same thing. Like they connect right here. But when you begin to see that continuity uh, on a, just like a, 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 a material level, um, that to me was a marker. So I hear you describing a similar marker. Um, and I've got a book called The Conestoga River, which I'm reading with sound very similar to, to what you're describing. So there's there's just lots and lots of, of parallels. And what I'm thinking as it relates to like what are the what what are these parallels kind of point to? Um, it's the fact that maybe there is a um, an archetype, like in terms of discovering things, of like discovery. Uh, of information which kind of goes through these steps where you're beginning to see like, oh, wow, these things I thought were separate are actually related. And it's all grounded first in the the material reality. But then we start to go and get more and more insight into what is built on top of it. And so as you're talking about uh, your interest with Tataria and going deeper and deeper into it, and as all of this more information is showing itself and giving itself to you, like, you know, that to me is probably going to be a big direction in terms of what, what you, the mystery, which you are uh, uncovering. Exactly. So, all right. So the, and yeah, I, I mean, that's profound. I think we'll get into that more and more as this goes on, but the Gaia matrix, which you, so wisely suggested came in the mail along with three other books that I also ordered. Um, they're all about the different stone formations across the Northeast, but you know, very interesting stuff. Uh, I open up the Gaia matrix, Mike, and two things came as huge connections for me. All right. The All right. first one being that Peter uh, puts the base chakra in his sort of chakra map of the Northeast right in my hometown. So, hmm. so Derby, Connecticut, technically is not a part of Milford anymore, but originally it was. And it's, you know, a bordering town to where I grew up. So he puts this base chakra at the confluence of the Naugatuck and the Pudatuck, or the now it's called the Housatonic River, um, right there in Derby as the root chakra. And then funny enough, to bring owls back up, I think we talked when you mentioned uh, the owls, I told you about the owl I saw at the beginning of the year in a state park called the People's State Forest, and it's right next to the Bark Homestead Reservoir. Well, Peter says that the Barkhamstead Reservoir is the spleen chakra in this layout. So not only, and, and, you know, whenever I would drive up to Barkhamstead, I would start by driving through Derby because that's how you get, you know, on Route 8. Route 8's a nice drive up towards that part of the state, and then you drive into the the Barkhamstead Reservoir, and it's so remote up there. You don't have cell service. It's, you know, there's barely any houses near the, the reservoir. It's... It's the most remote part of the state, which is, you know, saying a lot for Connecticut because it's pretty populated. 
and uh and yeah it's it's very striking you know I, i've only yet to read through the first couple i think i'm on like the second chapter but from where where i skimmed through i found those immediate connections and i, I was a little uh flabbergasted but yeah it's it, it's awesome to to find out and it, it rings so true with everything i've felt about connecticut because he says he says uh in the spleen chakra, one finds Hartford, Connecticut, and its water supply, Bark Hampstead Reservoir. People's State Forest is here, as well as one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country, Litchfield, Connecticut. There are many beautiful places and people in this zone of all models, colors, and economic positions. There is, however, a preponderance of negative indicators which suggest an unbalanced expression of this chakra energy. Connecticut is a state of contrast in which the wealthiest among its population thrive and the least are ignored. I mean, that's exactly everything that I experienced when I was a delivery guy. I mean, some days I'd be in West Hartford delivering, you know, 20 packages to one mansion uh, and and then going to another mansion and dropping off five you know and then and the next day I'd be in New Britain and you know I'd have like as twice as many packages as the day before but they'd all be little packages and they'd you know there'd be hundreds of stops because I'd have to go to so many different apartment buildings and so I saw the contrast you know I, I delivered in areas where there was drug addicts on the street and then I would deliver in areas where there were drug addicts in mansions you know it's like it, it, and then he also makes the connection to chemicals and drugs and yeah I, I mean i definitely encourage people who are interested to buy this book because he says a lot of really important stuff but yeah man i mean it, it's it's connecting to the intuition uh that really brought me here you know to bring back the idea of the archetype and i think that when you when you search from your heart you know, you'll find the truth and the truth is similar for everybody. There's different shades of it, but I think when it comes to the Gaia matrix and things that we all are collectively a part of, there's a collective truth that we can all tap into when you're honest and, and connected to your heart, you know, and, and way before, like you said, I wasn't sitting in some Starbucks plotting it saying, well, if I meet Sam Tripoli, then I'll meet Michael Wan and then I'll meet, you know, it never, it didn't work like that. But what it, what did happen was I would go to these natural places where it was very quiet. And with the information I had learned from different podcasts I was listening to, I would speak my truth into the air, you know, out into the world. I, would, I stood by the Susquehanna River and I said a prayer. And, you know, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with you, no offense, Mike, but it was just like, you know, I, I learned from you the significance of the river, went there and said a prayer, you know, and, and not just for myself and my own, you know, good fortune, but for everyone else. Cause I kind of understood that this place was connected to, the rest of the world in that really significant way. And now here I am kind of connected to all these awesome folks who listen to our podcasts. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I think, uh, I think this is uh, a nice place to wrap up this episode. This was fascinating uh, to hear this story. I love this sort of stuff. And the next time we talk, I want to tell you about uh, this past week of travels for me. 
Yeah, we didn't even we didn't even get to that. We didn't even get there. Oh, no, can you give us a little uh, cliffhanger? Unless you you, you really got to go, we got maybe five more minutes here. What do you think? Give us a little teaser. So, well, it it has to do with Jamestown and Francis Bacon and false realities and the Rockefellers and where all of this stuff moves from just like ideas and research done on a computer to actual living experience and feet on the ground and seeing things with, with my own eyes. And then uh, filled with uh, unplanned synchronicity that could, that could have never been expected. <laughs> well, I couldn't expect anything less from the synchro mystic. All right, Uncle Mike, this has been another uh, fun episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. Thanks for listening, folks, and you know where to find Mike. Follow him on uh, Instagram at Susquehanna Alchemy. Go to his website, show him some love. And if you're listening on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast feed, you better go over to the Susquehanna Alchemy feed and subscribe because this episode or this podcast isn't going to be on this feed for much longer pretty soon we're going to put it all on susquehanna alchemy and get everybody following there so uh we can keep things moving but yeah mike thank you dude uh for hearing me out and and letting me share my my story this week definitely uh feel like there's a lot left out but we got down to the the finer details but uh but yeah well let me say say let me say one last thing before we hang up. Uh, one, this is great, and I love hearing the stories, and I love reflecting back on it. But even more so, so today is what? Today is October the 12th, 2021, uh, if you're listening to this in another time. Um, but if you're listening to this in real time, or relatively real time to when it's being released, on October 31st, in three weeks, I'm doing a live in-person presentation in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. If you can make it, then I would love to see you there. There are only 30. It's only 30 spots. I'm going to be talking about consciousness, reality, and then specifically the Susquehanna River. And then the last part of it is going to be led by um, – I'm doing it at a wellness center called the Be Present Wellness, and the woman who owns that, she will be doing a sound ceremony at the conclusion of it. So I would like to include a link to that for people who are interested, who live uh, somewhere in the Northeast. You could come and see it, and uh, I'd like people to come to it. New Cumberland, PA. Yeah, folks, it's worth it. I've driven down to PA just to hang with Mike. It's worth it. So I'll be there if I can make it. You said it's the 31st? The 31st, yeah. I'll send you a link for all the details. Yeah, please do. I think uh, Tara and I would be very interested in, in both portions, the sound ceremony and your presentation. Well, Mike, thank you, dude. This has been fun. And thanks for, for joining in uh, that little birthday surprise thing that Tara put together because I, I saw you were driving, so I appreciate you taking some time to, to join despite your busy day. I wouldn't have missed it. <laughs> right on. All right, folks, you heard the man. Go follow up with him, and, uh, yeah, maybe we'll both see you in New Cumberland, PA, on the 31st. Thanks for listening to the Your Handbook for the Apocalypse 
This episode was very bird heavy. I think we'll call it something uh, to do with birds. I don't know if we we're going to be one of those podcasts that comes up with the title of the episode from something we say or if I'm just going to describe the episodes as that's been a challenge, but we'll figure it out. Either way, thanks for listening. Thank you, Mike, as usual. Talk to you soon. Peace.